0: This message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Father in heaven, we are so blessed to be able to come into your presence again. Lord, this morning we're talking about a tough issue, the sin issue. And how it enslaves us. Lord, I pray that you will make your strength perfect in our weakness. Especially myself, Lord. I need so much, the power that only you can give. I pray that you will speak through me to every person who is listening to my voice today. That each one may get what they need in order to draw closer to you and break free from the chains of sin. Thank you, Lord. Amen. This morning, I am talking about breaking the chains, overcoming the cycle of sexual addiction. Um, We also titled this The Broken Image, which um, you probably looked at in your booklet. Um, We chose those two titles. It's kind of, they both are a reflection of what we're talking about today. Um, The principles that I'm going to share with you today, we're applying to breaking free from sexual addiction, but they actually apply to any kind of addiction. And I know If any of you are in ministry, you're reaching out to other people, you're going to be dealing with people who are addicted because addiction is how sin works. All sin is addiction. All addiction is sin in some ways because addiction is idolatry, putting someone or something else in the place of Christ. So we want to talk about how do we break free from the chains of sin. Um, Now, I just have to really say it's courageous of you to come here and be here for this presentation. I know it's very difficult for some people to walk into something like this, but I'm not assuming you're a sex addict just because you're sitting here in the audience. I know many of you are struggling with things from, you know, other people in your family or your friends. You want to know how to reach out to them, how to share the gospel. And that's exactly what we're here to talk about today. We are here to talk about how the gospel applies to the brokenness that results from sin in our lives. Now, I find that, you know, I counsel with a lot of people who are struggling with addiction. Um, But particularly with sexual addiction, everything is just more intense. As other, you know, other addictions people face, they may go, oh, you know, I've been overeating and I feel really bad about it. But sexual addiction, nobody just mentions that. It's not like, you know, yeah, we were painting the boys' room green the other day, and by the way, I'm kind of struggling with a sexual addiction, you know. Nobody talks about that for fun, right? So when somebody comes and talks to me about their sexual addiction, I know already they've been caught for a while in a cycle of of depression. It's, you know, you try so hard, you're sure you'll never do it again, and then you fall. And you feel awful, and you promise God you'll never do it again, and then it happens again. And sometimes there may be a long break in between and you'll feel better, you know. Often when a guy comes and talks to me, this is a typical conversation when the guy comes and talks to me about sexual addiction. They'll say, "You know, I've been struggling with something, you know, it's, it's better now. First thing they say, you know, it, you know I, I've been doing better. It's kind of down to only once a week now or once every two months or once a day, whatever it is that is better. They'll be sure and tell me first. They're doing better than they used to. They got this under control, they think. You know, but they just thought they'd throw it out there, see if I had any suggestions. Um, for women, it's very different than that. Usually when a woman is going to talk to me about their sexual addiction, I know, like, from the first sentence, before they even open their mouth sometimes, there's this tortured look, you know, this kind of a, well, I don't know where to start. And, uh, and sometimes that's when the tears start, right then. And then they say, I haven't told my mother, I haven't told anybody, or, you know, nobody knows this, I just feel like I would die if, if someone found out, or my dad found this on my computer, and I just feel so terrible. For women, there's an intense sense of shame that comes along with sexual addiction a feeling like god will never give me a good spouse now not that guys don't feel that too but guys can decycle cycle through it more guys will feel terrible and then often they'll kind of go back to well you know but all guys have this problem you know um there's a very different feeling about from from one person's um, experience of sexual addiction to another person's experience of sexual addiction. So what I'm going to talk about today are general principles, but I know for you, your experience may be unique and it may not feel like this. You know, many girls kind of fall into the guy category, well, you know, I kind of, I'm getting better about this. And many guys will be the, I just feel like killing myself. I remember one guy who emailed me who made up a fake email address actually so that he could disguise his identity and write to me. And I wish I could say that's the only person who's done that, but I've actually had quite a few people make up fake email addresses in order to write to me because they don't want to tell me who they really are, this intense shame. This guy was in ministry. I don't know to this day who he was. He emailed me several times and I was just so struck by the, the desperation in his emails. I was afraid he's going to commit suicide. I heard from him several times, I wrote back, I corresponded with him, but uh, eventually I didn't hear from him anymore. I think he shut down that email address, but I hope that maybe he's out there and he'll listen to this presentation and find victory. I know he was really battling to find freedom, and he was so tortured by the fact that he was in ministry and yet couldn't stop himself from this. Yesterday we talked about sexual brokenness that happens because of other people's sins against us. Being sexually abused. And many people who struggle with sexual addiction also have been sexually abused. It's one of the primary factors that causes a person to fall into uh, a cycle of sexual addiction. And those who have been abused sometimes just hate it even worse because they felt so defiled and their whole experience of sexuality has been poisoned by that initial abuse. So they easily detach themselves emotionally from the sexual experience and find it a way to express that craving for God that they have in a craving for intimacy, a craving for somebody to satisfy them. Somebody love me, somebody please make me feel like I have some kind of control over my life. So for guys, there's often a strong tendency to need for control. For girls, there's often a stronger drive a craving for somebody to love me. So, you know, many girls would not consider themselves to be sexually addicted who are addicted to, say, romance novels or romantic movies or fantasizing. These things are also sexual addictions. They're warping of what God intended sex to be. And they put you on the track to falling into other things like masturbation and pornography. So when a woman gets to the point where she's into pornography, often she's been cultivating the seeds of a porn addiction for a long time. You know, little girls love to talk about marriage. My daughter was two years old when she first said, I want to get married. We'd just gone to a wedding, and to her, marriage meant walking around in a beautiful dress while everybody takes pictures of you and eating cake. Great. But she's been consistent in this desire to get married. She wanted to marry Daddy. Then she wanted to marry somebody exactly like Daddy. Then she wanted Daddy to pick her husband. Right now we're at the, we'll let Daddy help me pick my husband phase. (laughs) We're only at eight. I hope it gets better. (laughs) But she is obsessed with love. She wants so much. And I'm so glad that she looks at our marriage and says, that's something I want. But at the same time, I fear for her because... I know that so many of the kids that are around her are already cultivating things that are leading to them getting sexually addicted. How many of these young men who are growing up her age now are going to be rapists by the time she's 18? We live in a terrifying world. And for me, the most terrifying part of it all, probably, is that my children are going to have the Internet right at their fingertips all the time. There's nothing I can do about that. Sometimes we've just typed in something innocuous on YouTube like American Girl and up pop a whole bunch of things that I just go, oh my goodness, what if my daughter had accidentally clicked on that? It's terrifying because I know how deep-rooted a problem can begin just by one initial viewing of porn. I remember a girl that I talked with who felt so devastated because she had seen porn when she was about seven or eight years old And one of her friends introduced it to her. She didn't realize it was wrong. She just watched it. Wow, that's really interesting, you know. And for a few years, she and her friend would off and on watch pornography online. Then one day, when she was about 12, it dawned on her how evil this was. And at that moment, she shut the computer. She did not watch it anymore. But the guilt and the shame that tormented her, that tainting of her thoughts about sex, Stayed with her so much that many years later she's talking to me and saying I've never viewed porn again But I feel so terrible so permanently defiled because of what I saw That's sobering Raising young people in this world today. I cannot say Too much to you about how dangerous it is to just surf the internet wildly curiously looking up stuff be careful when you have children, be careful of your children, because while I know that God can heal from anything, you don't want to go down that road. You'll always go farther than you think you will. I've, I've discovered that many people, their, their image of sex is permanently defiled, or at least they feel like that, because of their early sexual experiences with abuse or viewing porn or something like that. <coughs> And the question that they have and the question that I had for many years is, why did God make sex anyway? What a horrible thing. I was like, God, look, with all these people being raped and all these children being molested and all these nasty magazines and just, it's so terrible and sick and filthy. Why would you make something like that anyway? I really doubted that God could have made something so nasty. And, you know, when I think of that, it kind of it makes me think of how sometimes when I make bread, I like to make challah bread. It's a special kind of bread. It's braided together. So I just take my ordinary bread dough, you know, I break it into three balls and roll it out into strips. And then I braid the three together into one loaf. And then I put it in the oven. When it rises and it bakes, those three strands are one. You can't just break that apart anymore. That loaf is all one loaf of bread, just as surely as if I'd made it into one ball of dough and put it into the oven. And this is often what happens with sex. God created sex. It's a beautiful, pure, holy, wonderful gift. I didn't understand how beautiful and pure and holy and wonderful it was fully until I got married. And I found just how wonderful it is that God has given us this gift. What would marriage be like if we didn't have Sex, you know? Two people stand up in front of a whole bunch of people and promise to be roommates till death do us part. (laughs) How many of you have ever had a roommate? You probably don't want to pledge to live till death do you part with that roommate after you've been with them for one year, right? (laughs) Marriage would be a, a very strange arrangement if you had to pledge to live your whole life with one person who you don't fully know yet, just... I'm going to make it a gamble. I'm going to choose this one as my roommate for the rest of my life. And God created sex to change that, to make this incredible, deep, intimate union between two people who, if they had sex the day before the wedding, it would be a sin. Even an hour before the wedding, it would be a sin. An hour after the wedding or the day after the wedding, it is a blessed experience that is ordained by God. What is it that makes that magical difference? That something that would have been a sin becomes something that's blessed and ordained by God, and the only thing that happens in between is two people say words. Isn't that weird? You see, there's something magical and mysterious about sex. We cannot fully understand that God has created this to be something that bonds two people. My husband is the sexiest man in the world to me. Right? Is he here? He's blushing somewhere if he is. (laughs) He is because I didn't have that experience with any other guy. So when I look at him, that's who he is to me. And I just think, wow, that guy is amazing. (laughs) Not only that, of course, if if all we had was sex and we hated each other all the rest of the time, it wouldn't be so hot, right? (laughs) That would be terrible. But sex makes us realize how deeply united we are. Sex is a beautiful, pure, holy, wonderful gift from God. And you may not feel like that if you have been abused or you have been addicted. But I want you to know you can. Because I do. And I had been abused and I had been addicted. Yesterday I talked a little bit about my experience as a 10-year-old until I was probably like 17, 18, you know. I struggled with fantasies all the time. And my friend and I were totally sexually addicted. As little 10-year-olds, we're always looking at men's crotches and talking about dings, as we called them. You know, that might seem to you to be really mild sexual addiction when you have to deal with porn nowadays, but I can assure you, if porn had been around and I had been exposed to it as a young person, I would have been addicted. Instead, I was addicted to porn of the mind, novel reading. I would stay up until 2 or 3 in the morning when I have to go to school the next day, reading the same three pages of the novel. The, the ones where there's a sex scene and imagining, fantasizing, what's that like? And you know, some of those were disturbing. These, these pictures that now that I'm married, I know how different it is than reality. These two people are so controlled by passion in the novel, they can't hold themselves back. They can't think. They can't breathe. All they have to do is just devour each other sexually. That is not God's ordained plan for sex. When you're together sexually with a person the way God intended, it is about a relationship between the two of you. It is not about an event that your body craves so intensely that nothing else in the world matters. That is called lust. That is something that leads to shame. And this is the problem that, that many people face, that sex and lust and shame are braided together until they become one. In the person's mind. And it's impossible for them to distinguish between sex, lust, and shame. Lust devours them, makes them feel like, I've just got to find somebody, anybody. Let me just look at people. I remember one of my friends and I would just go on what we called man hunts. We'd just kind of stroll around at camp meeting or something looking for hot guys to flirt with. I think of that now, I'm just like, what? Were we smoking? Oh my goodness. But uh, we were just obsessed, you know, and these guys with acne and braces would come up and flirt with us. And, oh, we'd walk away going, oh, he was so cute. Did you see how he looked at you? He smiled. Oh. And then we'd go on and find another victim. It was, it, we were just shameless about this. Um, but, you know, I was 15, the really sad thing is that there are people who are 25 who are still doing the same thing and older you know they walk into a party okay there are you know say 15 people of the opposite sex here so they kind of troll around figure out okay those three are the most attractive and they go and flirt with those three over the next half an hour and then whichever one seems to respond the best to them they flirt with that person the rest of the evening or if they're in the world they try to go home with that person and go to bed with them Now, I would suggest to you that that approach, even if you're not going to go home and go to bed with them, all you're doing is flirting with them for the rest of the evening, you're sowing the seeds of the same kind of behavior that's out there in the world. If all you do is just flirt with the person, you wouldn't dream of doing something wrong like going to bed with them. Yeah, but you're using them. You're using them as an object of sex. You're using them as something that feeds your hormonal urges. Instead of seeing this person as a child of God, these are the seeds that people sow that lead to sexual addiction. What I'm going to talk about today, I have two stages of this presentation. The first one, I'm talking about things that you will hear a lot of places, how to overcome sexual addiction. But the second one, I'm going to go deeper into how do you uproot the seeds? How do you stop sowing those seeds of evil? Because the ways that you think about sex are the the seeds that you sow that lead to the fruits of wrong behaviors. God wants us to see sex as a beautiful, pure gift, the reflection of his image. Remember, God says he wants to know you. He wants to know you. That means you specifically. He wants you to be able to be totally naked and unashamed. I'm so sorry to interrupt, but this seminar is almost full, so if there's an empty seat next to you, please scoot in away from the aisle just so more people can come in and find a spot easier. Thank you. All right, thanks. So God has created this image of his relationship with us called sex. He wants you to understand that he wants you to be naked and unashamed with him, that you can come to him about anything you feel. You don't have to disguise things. You don't have to pray formally. He wants you to just pour yourself out to become intimate with him. And I could go much deeper into this whole area, you know, this picture of God and his love for us. For a woman to give herself to a man, she has to become naked. And, you know, it may be a painful experience, particularly the first time. When we give ourselves to God, it's terrifying. Didn't you feel that way? When I surrendered myself to God, I felt like I was stepping off this cliff into the blackness. And all I've got is this voice from down below somewhere saying, don't worry, I'll catch you. Yeah, but how do I know that? How do I know you're not going to wreck my life? Because you let me be abused. You let all these bad things happen to me. You see, the abuse that I had suffered had warped my image of who God was, my belief in his character. And this is what always happens. We wonder if God is really who he says he is. Is he really loving? Is he really trustworthy? And so we try to take control of our own lives. We make pleasure our God. We think, I can do a much better job of finding happiness than God can because look at what he's done to my life so far. So we take the steering wheel of our own lives, say, I got this under control, God. I'll call on you if I need you. And we head toward what we think is going to make us happy. And then when we surrender our lives to God, too often we're like, okay, okay, things haven't been working out well at all when I'm steering. So I'm going to let you have the steering wheel. But let me just keep the GPS here. I'll tell you where to go and it'll work out okay that's not really surrender to God. And I would propose to you that that mindset is at the heart of much sexual addiction. We fear that maybe God's not going to set us free. Maybe God's not going to give us a spouse. What if he never gives us anybody? What if I surrender my whole life to him and then he never gives me a spouse? I wish I could say I never was foolish enough to think that, but I was many times. What if God never gives me anybody? I've been bad... I messed up. I don't know if I can ever be loved. God isn't like that. God gives good gifts and only good gifts to his children. You can trust him with your life. God wants you to know that sex is a beautiful gift where he comes into you. God, When you surrender yourself to God, he comes into you. He changes you. He gives himself to you and you become part of him. He becomes part of you. You're so intertwined, it's hard for you to distinguish when you're doing something, whether you're doing God's will or doing your own will, because they're kind of fused together. This is the sexual experience that God ordains for marriage. And I realize most marriages aren't like that. Most people who get married wish they hadn't, honestly. Most of those people, you're walking past in the grocery store who are married, and you're going, man, you're so lucky to be married. And they're thinking, man, you're so lucky to be single. (laughs) So many people get married in order to have sex. What if I don't marry this one? You know, I'm 32. Maybe nobody else will ever come along, and I'll never be able to have sex. Let me tell you, that's a really bad reason to get married. You marry somebody because you want to unite your life with them, not because you want to unite your body with them. And because you unite your life with them, and you love them, and you trust them, that's when you have the power to really unite your body in a beautiful and holy way. Otherwise, you're two people using each other. Sex is supposed to be about giving, not about getting. And this is the problem that lies at the heart of much sexual addiction. That people have sex in order to get. They want pleasure. They want to be loved. They want somebody to appreciate their beauty. Instead of it being about giving, which is what it's like when you're in marriage. And you know, I'm not stealing virtue from this person. I'm not doing something unloving to use them in order to satisfy my lust. You can never really make love outside of marriage. You can have sex, but you can only really make love inside of marriage because that's the only time it's a loving act. And even when it's in marriage if you're trying to force the other person or if there's some kind of unloving attitude at the heart of why you're having sex it's still not a loving act so sex is supposed to be a reflection of the character of God and God's plan is to unbraid those strands sex lust and shame take them all apart so that you can see him reflected in what he really is, a God who loves you, who wants to be close to you, who wants to give you good gifts. Just like many of other God's great gifts, like music or relationships or food, they're great gifts from God, but they can be used in terrible ways. In the same way, sex is a great gift of God, and the fact that it can be so terribly abused gives us some sense of what a powerful gift it must be for God to have given it to us anyway. Sexual addiction is powerful for several reasons. First of all, because we are created sexual beings. Many people who come to me with their sexual addiction issues, they're just like, I just wish that I could not feel anything anymore. I don't want to be sexually addicted. I just, I prayed and prayed, but God just doesn't take it all away from me. Well, no, because he created you to be sexual. God created us male and female. That's why sexual abuse strikes at the heart of who we are. As my counselor explained to me the first time I went to a counselor, he said, you are deeply wounded by the sexual abuse that happened to you because sex goes to the very core of who we are created, male and female. There's nothing wrong with being a sexual being. It's a beautiful gift of God. Be glad. Be proud for who you are. Sex is not that. It's a beautiful gift your sexuality is a reflection of who God made you to be secondly sexual addiction is powerful because we live in a culture of shallow relationships and fractured families this is why people are craving intimacy they don't feel loved. they don't feel like they're worth anything and everywhere you go you're told that sex is the key sex will make you feel loved sex will give you that intimacy you crave so deeply Sexual abuse and misuse are rampant. This is another reason why sexual addiction has so much power because a person who has been sexually abused tends to feel permanently defiled. There's this strong temptation to believe the devil's lie that not even the blood of Jesus can cleanse you from your own sexual sin and not even Jesus can set you free from the shame of somebody else's sin against you. You realize the difference between guilt and shame. Yesterday we talked more about shame, what you feel because someone else has abused you. Shame is a message from the devil that makes you feel like you are bad. Guilt is a message from God that says you have done something bad. See, guilt, guilt is a different thing altogether than shame. Guilt is a, a message of hope. It tells you you've sinned, there's something standing between you and me. Let's get it out of the way so that I can be close to you again. Guilt is God speaking to your heart saying, I love you. So guilt is the voice of God. When you are driven to your knees and you say, Lord, I'm so sorry, I've sinned. It's guilt that drives you there. But when you get up from your knees, you've repented, you've confessed, and yet you still feel like trash. This is not guilt. This is shame. Shame is a message from the devil. It feels like guilt, but it's the opposite. Shame is a message of hopelessness. It tells you not You've done something bad, but you are bad, and not even the blood of Jesus can wash you clean. This is something that will destroy you. I've seen so many people who are obsessed with sex and consumed by shame. The two are are linked like this. It cannot be pulled apart. When they're obsessed with sex, they feel terribly ashamed because the devil keeps telling them, you are defiled, whether it's by someone else's sin against them or by their own sin. The the devil says, you are permanently defiled. You can never be washed white as snow like the Bible says. You see, shame is a message of unbelief, saying God is a liar. He says he can cleanse you, but he can't. Why not? Well, because you still feel dirty. If you still feel dirty, you must still be dirty, right? Shame is a temptation to believe what you feel instead of what the Word of God says. And if you are struggling with shame, you must believe the Word of God. God says, if you confess your sin, I am faithful and just to cleanse you. He will do it for you. He cannot lie. But many people, because they cannot believe that, are sucked right back into the cycle of abuse. I remember uh, a person who came to me and was battling so desperately with this feeling. And when, as we talked about it, she admitted she'd been sexually abused in the past, and then she told me what she was continually doing. She said, I'm even going back to the porn that does the same stuff that was done to me, and I hate it so much, I don't enjoy it at all, but I keep doing it. And I said, is it possible that the problem is you believe somehow that you are defiled? This is who you are. This is who you really feel like you, you are because you are so dirty. And she started to cry, yes, that's exactly it. She felt permanently defiled by someone else's sexual sin against her. And therefore, she was incapable of believing that Jesus could cleanse her. And I said, you know what? You've been confessing the wrong sin. After you've gotten into a porn binge, you go to God, you confess what you've done. But you haven't confessed that root sin of unbelief, doubting what God says. And I pointed her to scripture where... We're told that nothing that comes from outside of a person can defile them. It's only what comes from within. And following that, Jesus gives a list of sins, sins that flow from our own hearts. The only thing that can defile you is your own sin. And the blood of Jesus can cleanse you from that. When we struggle with sexual addiction, often it's because sexual abuse and misuse have poisoned our view of sex. And I don't mean just by someone touching you. Sometimes it can be someone looking at you or making ugly statements about your body or about how sexy you look, making you feel defiled. That's sexual abuse. But often what also defiles our minds is the advertisements, the movies, the music, the magazines, all these things. Because Sexual addiction is powerful for a fourth reason, that we live in a super-sexualized society. People are surrounded by sex constantly. It's almost impossible to not be affected by it. You know, my children live in a house where there are no magazines like that, where there is no television like that. And yet when we'll go out into town or sometimes to church, I remember the other day we were sitting in church and my four-year-old goes, Mommy, look, that lady's not dressed modest. Thank you, sweetie. I'm glad that was during a song service and not right in the middle of church where someone would have heard that. (laughs) We live in this super-sexualized society, and people all around you are dressed this way, or you're looking at movies or, or something that continually... Pours this filth into your mind it's so hard to keep your mind clean and girls you know I, I know i'm not going to make a big long appeal about modesty, but girls please have mercy on guys you know if you if you really want if you really want to attract the losers, trust me dress immodestly and they will come out like cockroaches if you want to attract a decent guy please restrain yourself because The decent guys see you and avert their eyes. The kind of guy you want to marry is the kind of guy who will not allow himself to be around you if you're dressed that way because it's hard for him to look at you as a sister in Christ when your boobs are sticking out. (laughs) Can I be frank? You know, I get so frustrated when my husband is teaching class and he comes home, he's like, I can't wait until winter comes because these women (laughs) wear these low V-necks And then they sit forward in the front row, and he's just like, okay, where can I look, you know? (laughs) And this guy, you know, see, I have an advantage that a lot of people don't have. I have a husband who I can trust. A lot of my friends who have gotten married, I feel so sad because they don't have what I have. When my husband goes to work, I don't ever wonder who he's with. If he calls me and says I'm staying late at the office... I don't ever wonder. If he goes away for a weekend, I do not have to ask him when he comes back. So what did you do? Were you with anybody? Did you watch something in the hotel movie? You know, I, I, don't, I don't need to ask those questions because I trust him. I know what kind of man he is. I know what he does when he sees things that he doesn't want to see. That's the kind of man you want to marry, girls. And guys, that's the kind of man you want to be. When you avert your eyes from those kinds of things, you reflect the image of Christ and you help fight back against this super-sexualized society. When you take those second glances, you're sowing the seeds that are going to make it so much more difficult when late at night you're battling with the temptation and you realize I'm about to hit that edge where I just go, never mind, I don't care, I'm just going to go turn on the computer, I know I'll feel terrible, let me just get this over with. You know where I'm talking about When you come to that point, you've been sowing seeds for a long time to get to that point. Sowing seeds of not spending time with Jesus, of not loving him, of choosing to serve self, of choosing to look at the opposite sex as an object of lust. When you stop sowing those seeds, you'll be amazed at how much easier that battle is. We're going to talk about that in the second presentation. When God is at the center of your life, you will find that your sexual addiction will ebb away. Is the temptation always going to be completely gone? No, God didn't promise to take away temptation. He promised to save you from sin, and he will do that. But I do find when people deal with the root issues, the fruit issues tend to kind of dry up and go away. I want to share with you some grim statistics quickly here. 25 million Americans visit cyber sex sites 1 to 10 hours per week. Another 4.5 million spend over 11 hours per week on them. Over half of all money spent on the Internet in 2003 was related to sexual activity. Over 25% of those with Internet access at work viewed pornography during working hours. That is scary to me. These people are that desperate that they can't wait until they get off of work? What is going to happen when there's a blackout all over their city for a week and nobody can access their porn? This is really scary to me. This does not even take into account peer-to-peer file sharing, which is a huge area of where people um, interact sexually online. Someone recently told me that he just doubts that sexual abuse in any way is increasing since the beginning of time. I'm like, really? Is your head buried in the sand? What is this, you know? People actually are kind of blinded to how powerful and how huge this plague is. I want to share this partly to help you understand that if you're struggling with this, you're not alone. Probably at least one out of every two people at GYC, maybe two out of every three, are struggling with it or have struggled recently in the past. I know this because not only do, you know, what, what do people say? Half of young men are doing this, but a lot of girls are, too, because I know they're coming and talking to me, and every one of them feels like I'm the only one in the world who's doing this. I'm so sick. The total porn industry revenue for 2006 was $13.3 billion in the United States and $97 billion worldwide. U.S. adult DVD and video rentals in 2005 were almost $1 billion. That's just in America. Unique worldwide users, that means each individual person visiting adult websites monthly, 72 million. That's just mind-boggling that this many people are defiling themselves with the wrong view of sex. More than 70% of men from 18 to 34 visit a pornographic site in a typical month. That is terrifying. Nine out of ten children between the ages of 8 and 16 have viewed pornography on the Internet. Average age of first viewing pornography for boys is eight, and for girls it is 11. Now, that means that you're factoring in a lot of kids who don't see it until they're 16. How many kids are seeing it at two or three, finding it in their dad's bedroom or something? That's terrifying, because each one of those kids may be stained permanently. And 20 years later, they can still tell you what image they saw at that age. 47% of families said pornography is a problem In their home, 47. Be careful, little eyes, what you see, and be careful, person who is planning to get married, who you look at. Don't consider somebody who you think might possibly fall into this. More than that, I want to add there are 27 million sex slaves worldwide, 2 million of them children. If that doesn't break your heart, I don't know whatever could. Every 30 seconds, someone is victimized. The slave trade makes more than $32 billion a year, more than Walmart, Coke, and McDonald's combined. Statistics say that at least one in four girls are sexually abused in America. In reality, from my, my own experience, it's probably more like one in two. It's terrible. And more than that, I want to just bring this out. Homosexuality is a monumental crisis facing the church. I know That, with a group this size, there are several people in here who are struggling with homosexuality. That's fine. Don't feel like you are a weird aberration and if anybody found out, your life would be over. That's not true homosexuality is not something that you're just you're born, thrown into this box, you're a homosexual, you'll never be able to break away from this. Many people drift back and forth between their sexual attractions. Even the world knows this. Even though they, you won't read those statistics on CNN or somewhere else, they're very careful to make it sound like you're just born this way and there's nothing you can do to change. Mm-hmm. But some of you may have already been at the uh, booths and you've seen coming out ministries. I want to just for a second ask those who are here from coming out ministries to stand out stand up here. There's Mike, Lisa, Wayne, and Verna. All four of these people have battled and overcome sexual addiction and homosexuality, and I am just so proud of them. I I would encourage every one of you to go to their booth, get their information, buy their t-shirts, be supportive. Every one of you knows somebody who's struggling with homosexuality. Some of you know a lot of people. And they also are specializing. You can sit down now, I guess. I like seeing you guys up here. It's nice not be the only one standing up here. But <laughs> They can specially help you in dealing with sexual addiction issues. You go to their, their booth, they'll be able to give you information about their individual ministries, exceed, by beholding his love. Um, let's see, what else? Yeah, know his love and um, narrow way. There are four ministries who've banded together to make coming out ministries together. We need to unite in the battle to help those who are battling with homosexuality. Oh, good. 3ABN is re airing an uh, interview with Verna and Lisa talking about their testimony. Go and talk with these people. Take away the, the scourge of prejudice that people have toward homosexuality, it is just a problem of sexual addiction. One category of many kinds of sexual addiction, and God sets people free all the time. I have a lot of homosexual friends, and every one of them knows how much I love them. And yes, they know that I believe homosexuality is wrong, but also that I love them with all my heart, and that I pray for them, and that I do not look down on them and think, oh, that's nasty. That's not that way at all. God sets people free. We need to deal with the plague of homosexuality, and we need to take a front-running offensive because it is killing so many people not just the fact that some people are struggling with homosexuality but also the fact that this is what the world says see the bible isn't true because and here's their proof that the bible isn't true the bible said that homosexuality is sin but we now know it's just something genetic people are born with can't change never mind the millions of people who can testify that god has changed them i've literally had these conversations it's just mind-blowing you know on facebook when i remember mike and verna were arguing back in Wayne you know there's this person who's posting on my Facebook page you know come on nobody actually can break free from homosexuality that's the way you're created and they're all answering back but I did but I did but I did and, he, and he's like no but nobody can it, it's impossible I'm like, <laughs> what can you say to somebody whose mind is that closed we need to go out there and share the truth that God sets people free from every kind of sin that god is the author of victory of peace of healing of freedom if you're struggling with things you can also go to narth.com national association for the research and therapy of homosexuality if you still can't believe that i'm really telling the truth that people change all the time go read the hard statistics they're right there and if you want to read more testimonies go to exodusglobalalliance.org there are tons of testimonies this is something people break free from all the time Many people you know probably have struggled with it and broken free from it, but they don't want to say anything because they don't want people to be holding their children away from them and, you know, suspicious of them. It's not something everybody wants to talk about. As hard as it was for me to get up and talk about being sexually abused, it can be much harder to get up and talk about breaking free from homosexuality because you face this constant prejudice of, yeah, but you're not really free, right? We all know you'll, you'll fall back into it. So where are you on the scale? Are you still looking at hot men or is it women now? You know... Are you still tempted? The everlasting question. Thank you. Are you? (laughs) People amaze me. (laughs) Yes, Verna. Men do make my head turn. Men do make your head turn. You see, the fact is, people can say, well, you may decide you're not going to sin, but that doesn't mean that you're ever going to be able to actually, you know, be with someone of the opposite sex. But I I would... strongly recommend to you that you go talk to these people and you will find out that when you get to the root of what's going on in your heart God profoundly changes your attractions your impulses and who you are no God did not promise to set you free from ever being tempted by anything but God does promise to give you victory and as you get to the root of the things that cause those temptations you find an amazing freedom and healing in him oh there's Ron my other friend back there everybody wave to Ron He's a, the other one in Coming Out Ministries. Thank you for coming, Ron. All right. Is sexual addiction all that bad? I hope that you've been able to see from the statistics I've showed you how dangerous it is. That um, I just want to mention this other thing. When brain scans were taken of both porn and heroin users, the brains looked almost identical. That craving for pleasure, for something that they think will satisfy It's terrifying. Some scientists believe porn is more addicting than heroin because the porn addict's drug never completely washes out of his or her system. You know why? Because you've still got the images there. He or she has countless, sometimes hundreds of images that he can flip and pull from his brain anytime he likes. You've got them there. This is why it's so difficult to break free and so important that you must keep your eyes centered on Christ. The only way that you will ever overcome a sexual addiction is by focusing yourself on Christ instead of self. Make Christ the center of your life, and you will watch the chains fall off of yourself, things that you never thought you could have overcome. I want to give you some steps to victory. Some of these you can find online. You know, This is a typical progression that many places you'll be able to look up, and some of you I know have already tried many of these. That's why I want to mention I'm going to be talking about something different, something you won't usually find on the uh, sexual addiction sites and things like that, talking about getting to the root issues. Um, But first I want to say be honest with yourself and God. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, the Bible says, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Unless you have truth in your heart you can admit to yourself, I am struggling and I am addicted, you won't break free. Just like an alcoholic or a drug addict. God says, he that speaketh the truth in his heart will be saved. Be honest. Be honest with yourself and with God about what you're struggling with. Number two, accept responsibility for your sins. First Samuel 15 and verse 15 tells us the story of Saul and how when Saul had gone and attempted to kill Agag and you know all of that, but he ended up not killing Agag, not killing all the animals. Then when Samuel comes and confronts him and says, Did you do what I said? He says, Oh yeah, I've I've obeyed the Lord. Then he says, Um, why do I hear all these sheep then? He goes, oh that well, the people. The people brought those, the people saved the best and the people, it's all the people's fault. Guys, do not blame girls who dress immodestly for your sins. Amen. It is not their fault. Yes, they are responsible. They are accountable to God for the way that they behave. Girls don't blame guys, too, because some girls really struggle when guys dress in tight pants and muscle shirts and try to show themselves off. You know, please, save yourself for your spouse, okay? They're the one who's supposed to appreciate that. I don't mean dressing a bunch of sacks, women, you know, don't, nobody send me angry emails about how I'm telling everyone to wear tents. tent. I'm just saying. Accept <laughs> responsibility for your own sins. I get so angry when I hear stuff like some pedophile who says, well, the problem was this little girl just dressed like this. Come on. You're going down that road, though, when you start blaming everybody else. If my wife would have sex with me, I wouldn't be struggling with sexual addiction. No, if you were connected with God, you wouldn't be struggling with sexual addiction. It's not somebody else's fault. Other people bear responsibility for their own sins and you bear responsibility for yours. Until you accept responsibility for your sins, for your behaviors, and for your thought processes, you will never break free. Choose life. Get rid of every stumbling block. You know, some people, they say, I've I've decided to get rid of everything, but I'm not going to put a filter on my computer because then people would know. Well, no. You need to get rid of every stumbling block. I don't care what it is. You know what your stumbling blocks are. I remember when I dealt with a girl who was in New York City. She she was bisexual. She had so many sexual addiction issues. It was intense. Um, but she gave her life to Christ and we prayed over her. She had been battling with demon possession and she was delivered from that in a prayer session with several pastors and myself and Annie Morgan who's over doing another seminar here. And we prayed with this girl. She came to stay in my house that night because she was too terrified to go back to her apartment. She said she had so much stuff there that she didn't want to be in that room. It was full of evil, demonic stuff. Next day, I went with her to her apartment. Man, I never saw anything like this stuff. She had all these sex toys and weird things and drugs and wine, everything. You know, she's busy pouring the wine down the sink, and I'm like, Oh, here are your drugs? What's this? She's like, oh, yeah, those are my drugs, but there's nothing wrong with those, is there? You know, because, you know, the other day I was just about to freak out, and I looked down, and I saw a joint on the floor, and I picked it up, and I smoked it, and I calmed right down. You see, God sent that to me, huh? Wow, you know, <laughs> one day at a time. <laughs> I said, um, you have Jesus now. You don't need your, your drugs anymore. She said, oh, of course, she throws her, her chucks her drugs in the box with all the stuff that I have to haul back across New York City going, oh, Lord, let nobody stop me and say, what's that? Honestly, officer, I don't even know how to use this pipe. <laughs> but you know, with this girl, of all the stuff she had in her apartment, there was one thing that she was desperate to find. One piece of clothing. I have no idea Why? But this one thing had such power for her. She's like, I've got to find that piece of lingerie. I've got to find it. She's going through, throwing everything out of all of her drawers, crying uncontrollably. I've got to find that and get rid of it. She finally found it, burst into tears again, threw it in the box and said, I'm free. I don't know what was connected to that, but she did. I don't know what's connected with whatever you're struggling with. But if you will kneel down and break your heart before God and say, God, what do I need to let go of? He will tell you. Maybe there are friendships that need to go. Maybe there are people you need to block on Facebook because of the stuff that they post. Maybe there are magazines you need to throw away. Not even pornographic magazines. Maybe just models and and people that you look at it and you compare your body to theirs. And it sets you in that cycle of feeling that tremendous need to feel desirable. I don't know what it is. But God knows. And if you pour yourself out before him, he will help you to know what the stumbling blocks are. Entertainment, you know, of course, doesn't mean that you're going to have to give up movies and music because none of us could do that, right? You know, consistently I discover and uh, working with university students. You know, even four years ago when we first moved to Southern, students were kind of like, wow, we have to give up our movies. Now it's more like, oh, come on, you don't expect us not to watch movies. People are getting more and more steeped every year in this culture of, well, of course we're going to watch movies and listen to whatever we like. No, if the beat in that music is sensual and you can tell it, get rid of it. I don't care what the words are. If this is a stumbling block for you, do not cling to it and rationalize because that is the sin against the Holy Spirit. The sin against the Holy Spirit is when you cannot be honest with yourself and with God about what you're actually struggling with. If you have to just go listen to a cappella scripture songs for a few years, I'm, I'm not saying that's what you need to do. I'm saying go to God and put everything in your life on the altar. If you're really serious about breaking free, ask Him. Don't tell him what you are and aren't willing to give up. Ask him what he wants you to give up. But if it means not watching movies, just because no matter what you do, you can't get away from the way people dress and the wrong methods of relating to other people that are going to be portrayed in them, let the TV, the movies, the music, whatever it is, go. Is it more precious to you than Christ? Because this is the real issue. If those things are more precious to you than Christ, you're already lost. You're already on your way out of the kingdom. I'm not saying, you know, throw your hands up and just go, okay, fine, I'll never be able to let go of everything. I'm saying press close to Christ. Let him satisfy your heart. When you do that, you will find that the grip of those things on you lessens. There's never going to come a time when you just go, oh, well, you know, actually, I'm not tempted by anything in the world anymore. But you will find that God will give you victory progressively and that as you let go of things, you'll find freedom you never could have imagined before. The fourth thing you need to admit that willpower alone cannot save you. The Bible says, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to those that believe on his name, who are washed in the blood of Christ. This is what will set you free. Many of you already know willpower cannot save you because you've already tried and tried and tried and tried and tried. As I observe in dealing with sexual addiction, people try and try and try and try over and over before they ask for help because they just somehow still have this feeling that they can save themselves by their works. You know, it's, it's a legalistic perspective where we think somehow we don't really need Christ. Of course we'll pray and ask him, but we're not going to talk to anybody else. I know if I just try hard enough, I can stop myself from this. Number five, build spiritual community and accountability. Um, you know, I've listed up here, CovenantEyes.com. There are other websites. I think I've heard XXXWatch is a good one. I, anyway, there, there are different websites and ways that you can find accountability partners, people who can help you. I would give you one caution, though. With something like CovenantEyes, you know, it'll send an email to your accountability partner saying, so-and-so accessed this. All right, that's, that's important, that's really helpful, and it may pull you back. But if you've really got a serious addiction issue, On your hands you're not going to be able to just break free using that in fact some people find it a challenge they got to try to get around the software just having an accountability partner or something a filter on your computer is not enough because that's dealing with fruit issues you got to get to the root issues and one of the crucial root issues is you've got to have spiritual community you need to have healthy relationships with people in order to help you get away from the twisted way of relating to people Spiritual community. You know, in Acts chapter 1, we're told about what happened with the apostles. Jesus says, no, guys, don't go out and just do evangelism. Instead, get together and pray. Pour yourselves out before the Lord in brokenness and humility and in one, with one another. Make things right with one another. Build a solid spiritual community. You're not going to get over this on your own. You didn't get into trouble all by yourself. There were lots of factors in your life that drove you there. But you'll never get out on your own. You've already found that if you've tried and tried and tried. If you could have broken, through, through, from, broken free from this by yourself, you would have by now. Build spiritual community. Find people you can be honest and vulnerable with about what you're battling with. I don't know where you can find those people. God knows where they are. Ask him to send you to the people who can help you to be spiritually accountable. But even just cultivating wholesome friendships will help you not to crave intimacy so deeply. Many people, the reason why they're driven back to porn again and again, particularly for girls, is because they don't have anyone they can be really honest and vulnerable with, so they don't feel really loved. And for many guys... They don't even know how to be close to people. Guys have this, you know, macho kind of approach to things and they they end up not feeling intimate or close with anybody. God has created us to live in deep community. You know, other cultures in the world, families are so close-knit. You have this whole community that helps raise the kids that has its positives and its negatives but the truth is god created us to live in deep community that's why he doesn't say go spend every sabbath out in the woods walking around singing songs and reading your bible he says go get together with other believers because you're going to need them you need a community you need whole deep relationships You might want to go listen to a presentation I have on Audioverse called From Self-Protection to Soul Connection about how to build deeper friendships with people. God ordained that we have close connection with other human beings. Even if you don't tell everybody, you know, it's not like you need to go stand up in front of the church and say, Hi, I'm struggling with porn addiction. That may not be the most effective way to deal with it. But you need close friends who you can be honest with and people you can be real with. Not just about porn, but about life, about your walk with God, about whether you're having devotional time consistently. You need somebody to hold you accountable on that if you're weak. Build spiritual community and accountability. Um, next, immerse yourself in God's word and in prayer. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. If you want to break free from sin, you need his word hidden in your heart. You, many times what you'll need to do is... Ask the Lord, what is it that I'm really craving? Why am I turning to this porn? Is it that I'm searching for control? I need desperately to be able to be in control. Is it that I want to be attractive? Is it that I need to find worth? I need to be loved? These root issues are going to keep manifesting themselves. You pull off the leaves, it comes popping right back up again. But as you deal with those issues, you say, Lord, what is it I'm craving? And he'll reveal that to you in your time with him in prayer and through the study of the word. Then you go to his word and you find promises that tell you, I do love you with an everlasting love. With loving kindness I draw you. You find places in the word that God promises to be what it is you're craving for. Then when you start finding yourself being attracted toward things you know are wrong, deal with it now. Don't wait and don't say, I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to distract myself. I'm going to go for a walk. I'm going to go take a shower. I'm going to go do something. Let me call a friend. Let me get you, order a pizza. It's not bad to distract yourself, but you must deal with the craving that you have that God wants to satisfy. And often you'll find yourself, instead of getting to where you're right on the verge of the cliff and sliding down, you'll catch yourself back here before you get to that point and turn around. Focus yourself on Christ again. Thank him for what he's done for you. Pour out your heart and praise and thanksgiving and love for him and you'll find the addiction will fade away. Strike at the root of sin issues. That's what we're talking about in the whole of the next presentation. This is what you don't often find in other books. You know, there's a lot of people read Every Man's Battle. I'm not saying that's a bad book, but I don't think it's enough. Every Man's Battle will give you some good techniques, a lot of good scriptural things to do. You know, there's nothing wrong with cognitive behavioral therapy and a lot of techniques that people will recommend. This is something that's really helped me. Great. But what about your heart? Just avert your eyes is a shallow approach. That's a behavioral approach to a heart issue. You're not going to solve it. Strike at the root of the sin issues. Pour yourself out to God and say, Lord, Thou, God, seest me. What is it that's at the root of what's going on in my heart that's making me be attracted to this thing because there's some way that self is on the throne of my heart instead of Christ, and I need to know what it is so I can surrender that to you. And last, embrace the lifelong process of sanctification. In other words, if you fall, get up again. Don't lie there and wallow in the mud. God does not cram your face into your failures. This is not God. He gets down beside you and says, I know how you feel. I already carried this sin to the cross for you. I already felt everything that you're feeling and all the other sins of the world all pressing on me at once. But don't give up. You're never conquered until you stop getting up again. This is a process. It's not an event of sanctification. There are thousands of events of sanctification all the way through your life. Times that you have to choose. Am I going to choose To be like Christ or I'm going to choose to follow my own sinful lust. Choose Christ. But realize you're going to have to choose Christ ten minutes later or the next day. And this is a process. Don't be too hard on yourself or others who you're helping if they fall or if they find themselves not ready yet to surrender. People need to believe that Jesus loves them. Often until they actually believe that Jesus loves them, they're never going to even try until they see the the broken-hearted love of the Son of God that made Him come down and suffer and carry their sins, knowing they wouldn't even be sorry, until they see just how much He loves them, they're not going to be attracted to Him. Instead, they'll be harboring things like, well, why did God let that happen to me anyway, if He's so loving? Unbelief takes away your ability to overcome. We'll be talking about that in the next section. So embrace that lifelong process, but realize you're going to find the keys to victory in striking at the root, not just pulling off the fruits. You know, a lot of people take a lawnmower approach to dealing with sexual addiction. All right, I'm going to get rid of all those magazines. I'm going to get rid of everything. I'm going to get rid of my computer. Hey, you know, I'm not going to watch any more movies. not going to listen to any more music. They take this radical amputate everything approach. But they don't get to the root issues. It's kind of like me... Meme- weeding my garden with a lawnmower. Would weeding my garden with a lawnmower be very effective? What if I set it all the way down to just scrape the ground mowing? You know, man, then I'd deal with it, right? There wouldn't be any grass at all until tomorrow. This is the problem with many people's approach to sexual addiction. And this is my real problem with how many websites and many books recommend that you overcome. They take this lawnmower approach. Stop doing all those things. The avert your eyes approach. Those things are great. Those things are so useful. They're biblical. They can be life transforming. But unless you get to the root, you're going to find yourself continually going, what, it's back again? Get to the root. Let God reveal the thoughts and motives of your heart, right? The word of God reveals the thoughts and motives of the heart. What is it you're craving Because God has put into you these cravings to love him and to be loved in return. We have these tremendous God-given longings for lovability, for worth. You can call it security and significance, whatever it is. The problem is we seek to satisfy these longings without God. And when we do that, we are idolaters. It's just a matter of time until we fall back into sex or something else. You may stop the sexual addiction, but the next thing you know, you'll be eating obsessively. We're listening to music. We're calling your friends. Whatever it is, you've got to get to the root. Give yourself to Christ. Our idolatry issues boil down to two things. Attempting to be God or attempting to replace God with someone or something else. And those really come from two biblical concepts, pride and unbelief. We think that we can overcome things and therefore we don't turn to God. Or when we've failed we think that God cannot deliver us. The self-directed life is like this. Self is on the throne of the heart, and everything else around it is in chaos. Those who are listening on Audioverse can't see the illustration, but you've got the self sitting there in the middle, and everything else in the life can't seem to get ordered. Christ is outside of your life, and no matter how hard you try, you'll never get yourself organized. You'll never be able to discipline yourself enough to get your life under control. But the Christ-directed life, in contrast, is when Christ is on the throne of the heart and self is yielded to Christ. Then your interests are directed by Christ, resulting in harmony with God's plan. I want to close just by reading one quotation from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was martyred for his faith by the Nazis. He never married, but he lived a long life of freedom and joy in knowing Christ wrote some powerful books and he said the essence of chastity is not the suppression of lust but the total orientation of one's life toward a goal. As you orient your life toward the goal of glorifying God instead of trying to find happiness and peace and enjoyment and pleasure you're going to find that the other things fall off. When you pull the plant up by the roots the leaves wither up on their own. I want to close this with a brief word of prayer and then we'll have five minutes and begin again on our next seminar. I know we're not going to have a whole lot of time, so let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, we just lift up our hearts to you and ask that you will make your strength perfect in our weakness. Help us to be like you, Lord, because you've promised that when we are like you, we will see you as you are. And I pray that you will make that a reality in every one of our lives when you come to take us to heaven. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.